Namibia, the driest country in sub-Saharan Africa and one of the least densely populated in the world. It's home to the Namib Desert from which the country derived its name. In October of 2021, I joined a group of runners from around the world to run the seven-day Namib Desert Stage Race, part of the Racing the Planet Four Desert Series. Together, we'd run 250 kilometers through sand dunes, canyons, and moon-like landscapes, battling heat and high winds, while carrying all of our food and camping equipment for the entire week on our backs. Follow along in this nine-part series, documenting my entire adventure before, during, and after the race in one of the oldest deserts in the world. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the Fail to Fail podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. What is up, everybody? It has been a while, but I am thrilled to have on this month's guest in our limited series, the Fail to Fail podcast. You just heard the opening intro to episode one of his fantastic YouTube series that I have a lot of questions about. But joining us now is ultra marathoner, long distance runner, fantastic video production, film crew, director, AP, everything involved, one Jeff Pelletier. Jeff, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, how are you doing? Fantastic, I'm so, first and foremost, congratulations on that particular series, you're, you're racing Nambia. That is a fantastic nine part series. And um, I wanna get talking to you about that, but before we do, first off, um, has anybody suggested you try selling it to a streaming service? Because it's set up. It's all set up for, you know, the fade-ins, for the commercial break. That is a well-shot series, sir. As far as, you, I mean, that does not look like you're running the mill YouTube video. That looks like, a, my, my wife and I were sitting there watching, and she's like, is this on TV? I was like, no, but it looks like something <laughs> that maybe he set up when hopes to sell to, like, a travel channel or a discovery channel. You could definitely get that on. Too bad they don't have, like, an ultra-marathon outdoor running channel, because that would be perfect for it. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple, um, there's one VOD platform in particular that I do license some content to um, that's specific for like endurance sports and things. But uh, no, you know, it's, uh, you're not the first person to suggest that. Um, and, and thank you very much. I, I you know, th those are kind words, but I definitely did um, structure it in a way that it, it feels like a television show. But, you know, that's also because television shows are structured that way for a reason. They work like half, half an hour of content is about right. You know, a commercial break every seven minutes or so is about right. And, you know, i got to make some money, too. i got to pay the bills. So, um, you know, having a, a, a teaser at the end to kind of tease out the next episode. I mean, that's all done for a reason, right? It works. And so I figure why not apply the same kind of format to my YouTube series? But it's a super smart move because making it feel like a TV show, I think it'll automatically, unbeknownst to the viewer, increase their mm -hmm. attention span. Because so many of us, we just see so many YouTube videos. A lot of people don't even have attention yeah. span for a 30-minute YouTube video. Yeah. And I can only imagine someone like you doing a 100-mile, 100 150-200-mile race and just saying, okay, i got to condense mm -hmm. 48 hours worth of video into 35 an hour. And so uh, we'll get into that a little bit later because I, I shoot videos too. And one of the things mm -hmm. I want to bring up, and I'm sure you completely understand is, I think a lot of people watch videos on YouTube or even on TV and they're just like, oh, that's, that's easy. You just go out and shoot some film and it magically edits itself together. And 
the amount of time and energy it takes to put together, you know, a, a 20 minute fishing video is one thing, but the quality of stuff that your videos have progressed into is just, I'm sure you, when you first started this channel, you probably didn't even think that it would be going that direction, did you? Well, no, I mean, I, so I am a, a professional video producer by trade. Okay. Um, so, so in terms of the, the equipment, the skills, you know, that kind of side of things, um, it's more where I've progressed is more as I've seen the, the, the feedback and my channel has been growing. I'm just simply investing more time and resources into it. Sure. So it's not, I mean, having said that I am, I'm improving my craft, the craft mm -hmm. of telling shorter form stories about running. I mean, that's yeah. pretty specific, right? So, um, I'm definitely improving in certain aspects, but again, it's mostly that I'm, I'm sort of applying what I already know, uh, professionally, I'm kind of sinking more resources into YouTube. And that's sort of where you maybe have seen that, that, that progression in some of my films recently. Well, as somebody who worked in radio for six years, your VO work is fantastic too. So uh, don't sleep on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, a lot of people think, <laughs> Oh, I just write a script and read it. No reading into a microphone yeah. in a room by yourself and making it sound like you're not only talking to one person, but to everybody, it is a struggle and it's not easy to do. So mad props yeah. on that real quick. Let's just get a little background. Um, Obviously, you grew up in Canada. Watching your videos, mm -hmm. your family has history all throughout areas of Canada. But just give us the quick uh, Reader's Digest version of where you grew up, how you got into running, yeah. and what got you to where we are today. Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, over here on the West Coast, British Columbia. Um, I've lived here my entire life. You know, I, I grew up on the ocean and um, spending time in the mountains and, um, you know, really developed a, a passion for the, the outdoors early on. Um, I, uh, uh, as you mentioned, my, my, my heritage is, you know, I, my, on my dad's side of the family, um, we've been in, in Quebec since the 1640s and my mom's side is from Saskatchewan, which is sort of central Canada. Um, so yeah, so Canada is really my home, but like a lot of Canadians, I like to travel. So it's, you know, um, that's one of the, my favorite parts about trail running is, is the places it takes me to. Um, I've been running for, I'm 40 now. And I started running when I was 27, um, initially road running, you know, yeah. like kind of a bucket list thing. I figured, Hey, you know, let's, let's try, try doing a marathon, you know, and I did a few of those and then I kind of got bored. I started getting diminishing returns, mm -hmm. you know, training for six months to maybe shave three or four minutes off your marathon time. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, you can only keep that up for so long. Um, but around that time, around when I turned about 30, I, I sort of stumbled into trail running. I met some people who were doing these ultra marathons, right. And, and, I didn't know you could run further than a marathon, let yeah. alone run a hundred miles or, or further. Um, and that really sparked my interest for, you know, applying this, this, this quest for fitness in terms of running with something bigger, um, you know, a, a more of a, a thirst for adventure in, in the backcountry on the trails. Um, and that's when, you know, uh, I enjoyed running, but uh, trail running really became a passion of mine. And I've been doing it for about a decade now. And it's now, as I mentioned, it's intersected with my per my professional career as a video producer. And uh, the next decade of my life, I see being focused on telling stories, making films and traveling the world and, and you know, having some cool adventures. And that's the nice thing about, you know, your later videos is not only you, you cover the race, but mm -hmm. you kind of at the beginning and an end, depending on how many episodes it is, you almost have like a travel channel feel to it. You tour the local area, you show some of the places, give the history, especially if it's places where your family grew up. 
And so not only you get the, you know, a lot of running videos, oh, here, I'm going to fast forward through the runs. I'll show you the checkpoints yeah. and this and that. Okay, here's my place. I'm done. Whereas you, while you're running, hey, this trail is named after this event that happened in the mm -hmm. 1600s. Um, be perfectly honest with you, as a ignorant American, like when you're running, what was it, the HBT trail? The Oh, yeah, the, the Hudson Bay Com Company trail, the HBC trail, yeah. As a Floridian, you know how I know about the Hudson <laughs> Bay Company? Uh, the little TV show on Netflix that had the guy from the uh, Man movie um, about the yep. fur trade in the 1600s. So I was wondering, I was like, oh, that remind that's that. What was that? That's the same one that's and the same. The yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because the Hudson Bay Company is a lot more uh, well known in Canada, sure. let's say, but but still here, people don't necessarily know about the history. And um, so yeah, so I mean, that was a good example of one. This is a fast pack we did. It was a two two day fast pack about uh, about 50 miles. And um, uh, fast packing is where we, you know, we carry our tents and our sleeping bag, but we're, we're running for most of it. And uh, it was a great experience to learn about the trail. And of course, teaching is the best way to learn. And I, yeah. I knew I was going to be making a video and I wanted to, you know, impart some knowledge. And so I did my research beforehand. And then, of course, a bit more when I was writing the script. But part of that is I wanted to I wanted to have that knowledge as I was running the trail so I could really enjoy it and see it through another lens. Um, and, but that was partly why, why that trail was on my radar in the first place was because it sounded like such a cool, you know, there was so much history packed into 50 miles. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so again, it was a great, a great, um, chance to learn and then to teach. You know, I didn't even, that just registered in my brain right now. Maybe that's part of the reason why your videos reached out to me the way they do. Because if I were to turn my camera around in this room, I have World War II stuff all over. I actually host the three yeah. podcasts. One of them is a World War II military history podcast. And I'm a historian at heart. And I love the fact when you when you kick that history in. Um, you're talking about how you got into running in your early 30s. And then you, you discovered long-distance running. And one mm -hmm. thing... Um, Maybe you can help me with a hypothesis I'm working on. Yeah. Um, I didn't start running until my mid to late thirties. Um, I was, I, like I said, I was working on the radio. I used, I skateboard for 18 years growing up, snowboarded, used to be fit, um, got in my twenties, late twenties, thirties, got to play an Xbox. I do computers for a living, worked mm -hmm. in radio for six years, just sitting on my ass. And then I ended up gaining a bunch of weight, had two kidney stones, said, I need a life change. I start going to the gym. I was, I was super addicted to the gym. I have addictive personality anyhow. And, but, um, I got to the point where I hurt my elbow going to the gym twice a day and I was concerned that my weight loss is going to stop. And so I needed something to change up my pattern, but I mm -hmm. knew that I hated running. I would always do 20 minutes. I would suffer through 20 minutes on a treadmill. And then I just said to hell that I went outside, ran out, ran outside. And I realized the difference between running outside and the treadmill, the key difference is when you're running on a treadmill, your body's trying to instinctively match that gear ratio of the motor on the treadmill, mm -hmm. and it's either a, it's a smidge too fast or a smidge too slow, and you're kind of uncomfortable, not to mention the lack of scenery, which is the hypothesis I'm working on. But um, So I started running. Okay, well, then I signed up for my first 5K. That was cool. Ran a bunch of 5Ks. Um, actually, a little bit of a lie. I got into running too, not only the gym, but I saw these videos for Spartan races and Savage races and these tough mutters. And Carrie's like, you don't run, you'll have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you need to run before you, okay. So I started running, did a couple of 5Ks. Um, and kind of like you were saying, when you first start running, especially as somebody who's getting in the 30s and in the 40s, when you first start running, you'll, you'll get all these personal best. Ooh, I ran my first 10 minute mile. Ooh, I ran my first nine minute mile. Ooh, I hit seven 30 minute mile. 
as you mm-hmm. get older, that, that speedometer starts going the other way. But what you discover is I may not be able to run faster, but I can start running longer. And so That's before right. you know yep. that, that mile run that you go in a week, now I go out three, four days a week and I can run three miles. Every time I go out and run, I run a 5K every time. But the hypothesis I'm working on, and I struggle with this, maybe you can help me out. I came up with the idea that the view, instinctively I want to say the view is 40% of running, but then I say no, it's 60%. And here's why I go, and that may, that may sound like a high number, but watching your videos kind of prove my point. I can go out and run my neighborhood three, four days a week, and I struggle to get through three miles because I'm looking at the same crap every day. It's flat streets, I'm here in Florida, houses, bike path, mm-hmm. tree. I go downtown Fort Myers and I can run six miles just as easy as that three miles because I'm running over a bridge. I'm seeing downtown Fort Myers. I'm seeing people. I'm seeing lights. And I th- I truly think that 60% of running is the view. Does yeah, that- I think if you're doing it right, um, you know, I think the the that, that difference you mentioned between the treadmill and running outside, mm-hmm. there's a, the same difference exists between running on the road and running trail. Sure. So you could take that next step. A person can take it further and yeah. say, you know, instead of running around around the block, let me run on a mountain ridge. Let me run through a canyon. You know, let's go see something epic and beautiful. Let's add a little bit of, I don't want to say danger, but a little bit of risk, you know, a little bit of stakes. Let's let's add some adventure to it, right? And now it becomes something completely different. Now it's a bonding, bonding experience with your buddies. You're out there trying to tackle this challenge and, you know, you're researching and preparing and, you know, it, it's not about the running anymore, right? And yeah. so you're tricking yourself. You accidentally get fitness. You mm-hmm. accidentally train for these races. And then you show up on race day and you go, yeah, I'm ready. I mean, I did all this fun training for it, which is so different than forcing yourself to spend time on the treadmill or running around a track or, you know. And a key phrase it, you it, said yeah. too, training. I, I, if, if you're at home listening to this or watching on YouTube or Twitch or wherever, and you've been thinking about, oh, I need to work my physical fitness. I need to diet. I need to work out. That's great. Once you start. For me personally, I'll look on a calendar. I'll sign up for an event three, four mm-hmm. months out because now I'm not working out. Now I'm not exercising. Now I'm training, and it's all a mental thing. And so it's easier to train because you have an end goal. You're not just running yeah. around the uh, neighborhood for the purpose of running around. Now you're training for this 5K. You're training for the Savage Race. You're training for a half marathon, whatever. And for me personally, mm-hmm. it's the mental aspect of it is, is do I want to go home and work out or do I want to go home and train? And so for me, exactly, just tricking yeah, myself, yeah. it's train, train, yeah. train. Yeah. And having that goal is important. That goal doesn't have to be a race. That goal can be that big hike you've mm-hmm. always wanted to do, or that big run you've always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, races are great because they're, you know, there's a date and you got to, you know, you pay and you register in advance and, you know, you can't just postpone it by a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of this too, it's not just motivation. It's not, it's not just so that you do more training. It's mm-hmm. sometimes so you do less. It, it having these milestones throughout your season, call it, um, it 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 forces you to recover, yeah. to taper, as we call it sometimes, where you you taper off your training right before a race. You take a few weeks off after that race, you have an off season. It gives it gives you again seasons, first of all, it gives you an ebb and a flow. So you don't get burnout, so you don't so you don't get injured. Um, and that's, that's the biggest benefit I see of having those kind of goals throughout the year is it gives again, that ebb and flow. And it's not just this stagnant plateau of just going out and pounding out the same route every week. Yeah. 
And that's something that took me a while to figure out was the recovery. Because once again, I have a different mm-hmm. personality. I used to go to the gym twice a day, five days a week. And then I started running. every. I was running six days a week. And now I'll run three days a week. If I'm not running, I got a mixed fitness bike. I'll do three or four spinnings. And then I'll go to the gym three days a week. And then I try to mix it up. Or I'm out on my kayak fishing all day, being outside in the sun and, and getting in nature. But um, how I discovered you, um, I got to give credit to the Google algorithm. Um <laughs> Because I, I, on my YouTube channel, I have three savage races that I've uploaded. I'm a, a rugged mm-hmm. maniac. And um, so, I don't know, about four or five months ago, I'm just watching YouTube. And um, because of my OCR training videos, my savage race videos, um, videos started popping up on my timeline. And the first one I came across was the Berkeley Marathon, which for those of you at home not aware of the Berkeley Marathon, if you want a fantastic view of a crazy anti-race. It's probably the only marathon that's kicked off with the guy who starts the marathon by lighting a cigarette. I mean, you get more anti-race than that. And so I started watching this Barkley Marathon thing. I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And so then I started, I watched three or four different documentaries about that. And then obviously Mm -hmm. through YouTube, other people's um, fastest known time, you know, long distance running on Appalachian Trail show up. And Mm -hmm. then a few years start popping in. And I started watching yours, and then your your Nibia race came through, and I watched all of those. And I'll tell you, it for me, it couldn't be at a perfect time. I discovered you about, I'd say about a month and a half ago, and my brother and I, we've been keeping up with the Ukraine stuff before it really kicked off. We've been hearing yeah. the, the dust and the wind and all that, and so between that and COVID and everything else going on, I would just go to your videos just to disconnect from all the insanity, whether it's fighting with my kid over homework, whether it's my computer business or a podcast I'm doing or the all the stuff in Ukraine. It's just sitting down, watching your videos and watching run and listening to the history. And I just uh, reached out to you and I was surprised how quick you, you got back with me and said, yeah, I'll do your podcast. I'm, I'm all about it. And I appreciate it. And um, I'm super excited to talk to you. But um, my furthest run for me, um, when actually when the pandemic kicked off, well, it was like what, February or March of 2021? Yeah, March-ish. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was actually supposed to run my second or third Savage Race. It, it was supposed to be March 3rd here in Florida, but it was canceled due to COVID. But I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, man, I've been training for this thing for six months. So I started scrolling through the internet, and I found there's a half marathon down at Marco Island ran by the Lee County Physician General Group. I'm like, get on their Facebook page. I was like, oh, it's going to be canceled. No, it's still on. I'm like, well, if a bunch of doctors are putting on a half marathon, <laughs> I guess it's safe. Now, I live in Florida. I live by island. Marco Island's an island, as the name implies. Didn't look at the course map. I said, okay, I've ran 14 miles before during my training with run groups. I can do a half marathon. Even though the, the furthest I've ever ran in a legitimate race was a 10K. Went down there. As soon as this thing kicks off, running over two bridges, then apparently Marco Island's full of mounds this place is super hilly but i made it through it was fantastic and there's just something about it i'm sure with you with the distance you run that it's probably changed but um i remember i still remember the first time i got that quote-unquote runner's high to me it happens around eight miles my brain just disconnects from my body and my body just goes in auto motion and my brain's just thinking about everything else in the world looking around and it's so weird how your body gets into that position and i can only imagine running 50 60 100 miles how your body probably does the same thing i was actually out running one night i was like a mile 14 
And I was trying to slow down, but my body wouldn't let me. It was it was stuck in that autopilot. I'm like, you know, I don't know where this thought, you know, you think it's weird crap when you're running long distance. I was like, you know, if a cop stopped me right now and tried to talk to me, he'd have to tackle me because I can't stop my life <laughs> from running. I can't stop. It's just weird how your body takes over. And for me, it's like my mind just disconnects. It's like my body's doing its thing. I can think about something completely different. And when you get back, it's almost like you've processed all your thoughts. No wonder your depression goes mm -hmm. away because you just have, especially when you're running that hours of days that you are, you just have so much time just to inventory all your life, really. And it's really crazy how, you know, that works, especially you put in some earbuds and you just, mm -hmm. you fall into your mind. It's almost like meditation almost. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a lot, a lot like meditation and, uh, yeah. I mean, if you've got, if you've got a problem to work through, just go out for a run, you'll probably have the answer by the time you get home. Um, and you know, I, I, I have a lot of ideas that come to me for, for, you know, work for video projects, whatever, whatever it is. And I'm, I'm constantly doing voice memos, you know, on my phone mm -hmm. as I run, like, oh, I can't forget this, you know? Um, and that runner's high, I mean, that's, that's a real thing. It's, um, you know, it, we were made to move. Yeah. We were made to not, not necessarily run long distances, but definitely move. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's a real thing. And the, the longer you go, I mean, you know, it, it does take years for running to become a natural thing. And we all, I still deal with injuries, overuse injuries and things, but sure. you know, the longer you go, the more it feels like a natural state of being, you know, where you sitting is nice too. I like, I like to lie down. I like to sleep, but I love to, I love the feeling of moving swiftly, especially moving swiftly through the mountains, through, through a trail. It feels, it feels great. It feels natural. It feels supernatural. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. So those of you listen, please don't say, here we go again, but I want to, I want to get <laughs> your opinion on this. First time I ever ran a race 5k you know i ran with some you know five or six people in a run group first time i had ran in a large group you want to talk about natural that pack instinct that you never knew you had oh, it yeah. kicks in as soon as that bell goes off people start running your mind's mm -hmm. automatically looking at people okay there's no way i can run faster than that dude i can definitely run faster than him and your body instinctively finds its position in that pack until the pack starts to loosen up and then you're like okay which by the way mm -hmm. when i'm six foot five when I ran the half marathon, I found some poor schmuck who was six foot seven. So I actually could, <laughs> I could actually trail somebody for once and get a little windbreak. I followed yeah. him through most of the way and then I got in front of him for a while. But it's amazing all these little natural things that you never think about, especially if you've never done this sort of thing. The pack instinct kicks in and just, and it's so much easier, you know, for people who are struggling, who, who whether it's going to the, working out, gym's the same way. Yeah, you can buy that equipment, work out in your garage, and that's great. But there's something about being around other people who's suffering through the same thing that you are kind of makes you do it for a longer period of time. You may find, okay, working out my, unless you have serious social anxiety, you may find, you know, working out in my garage for 30 minutes is rough. But when I go to the gym, it's easier for me to do 50 because I'm around other people doing the same thing and they're suffering just like I am. And for me, running's the same thing too. And yeah. And it's, uh, you know, we do these long, these long distance backcountry adventures, like I said, and usually we're out in groups, you know, three, four or five people, sometimes bigger groups. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, somebody's already always pulling, right. Somebody's falling off the back, having a hard time and, but you take turns, right. You yeah. take turns pulling the group along. And, um, you know, if you're out there for eight hours, it's, you're going to have a low moments and usually somebody else can kind of take over and, and lead the pack. So yeah, you work together as a team too. Um, but there's also that sort of competitive aspect, as you mentioned. So, yeah. I mean, tra trail running, you know, people ask me all the time how to get into trail running. And I think it's unique, you know, running, you want to learn to you run and run a 10 K just grab some shoes and, and leave your door. Good shoes. Trail running. 
yeah, you want some good shoes, properly fitting shoes. First thing, somebody said, though, I can't run my shins hurt. That's because you got the wrong shoes. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, or, or, or <laughs> you've been using them for too long. Right? Yeah, exactly. Thousand kilometers on them. But with trail running, the best way to get started is find a group, mm-hmm. like find a crew, find a community, and just learn from them and go out with them. There's safety in numbers. There's knowledge there, um, and that's you know there's motivation there, right? So that's the best way to get out on the trails is with with some friends. And you said you're 40. I'm 44. I'm, yeah. It, running is one of the few sport, sports, um, physical activities where it's there's more older cats doing it, especially the long distance oh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you have your high school yeah. kids, you know, doing the quick sprints and the you know that sort of thing. But when it comes to you know five k, ten k's, marathons, we're all older cats out there because once again, as we get older, the speed slows down, but the distance mm-hmm. grows, and so we start focusing on the distance. Um, for the uninitiated who's listening to this. When it comes to ultra marathons and ultra marathon races, there's kind of different um, setups, if you will. You have stage races, you have non-stage mm-hmm. races, you have kind of break that down for just the the rough, you know, the rough layout difference between a stage race, non-stage race, a race with a crew versus a race without a crew, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll tell you kind of my my progression through the sport. I mean, I started as I mentioned. Uh, you know, I did a few marathons before transitioning to trail running and pretty quickly I did my first ultra marathon, which is 50 kilometers or about 30, 30 miles, 31 miles. Um, basically it's anything further than a marathon. Um, typically these are on trails. Usually when people talk about ultra running, they're talking about trail running and vice versa, but not always, you can do an ultra on the road. You can also do shorter trail runs, but they, Part of the reason is that you just don't want to run that far on the road. I mean, as I said, it's not as fun. It's not as motivating, but it's and also not as, it's harder on the body yeah, right? the running on pavement. Yeah. So typically those go hand in hand. And so again, we're usually talking about trail races at, at the 50 K 30 mile and above. Um, the next stage, what I progressed to, I think in that same, it might've been the second season of trail running that, that I did. I then did 50 miles. That's kind of that next step up, um, give or take some races are maybe 52 miles or whatever. Um, and you know, we're talking about, uh, depending on the race, you know, seven, eight, maybe 10 hours of running. Some people take longer, 15, 16 hours, if you're walking a lot. Um, and the next step after that is hundred K, you know, so, uh, roughly 60 miles. Um, and then after that you hit the hundred mile mark. So I didn't do my first hundred miler for, it took me a few seasons. Um, and I, I, I built up to that at that stage. You know, again, you're running on trails usually a bit, there are some roads, but the biggest difference there when you get up to the hundred mile mark is that you're usually running throughout the night, sometimes two nights, depending on the race. So you're often seeing two sunrises and there's a whole different aspect to this. So, you know, an ultra is an ultra. You run more than 42 kilometers, more than 26 miles. You've run an ultra, but a lot of people would say that the real experience of ultra running, that true, you know, yeah, where you kind of find yourself is running through the night and, you know, pushing and, and, and still, and that sun rises and you're still going, there's something special about that. You really learn something about yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the pinnacle. Now, having said that some of us run longer, I've done my longest race was 200, uh, 220 miles. Um, and that was with, through the Swiss Alps. So, you know, we're talking, um, several Mount Everest's worth of climbing and descending, so, you know, a lot of power hiking and that took me four and a half days with, you know, maybe five or six hours sleep in that period of time. Uh, so a lot of zombie marching. Yeah. Um, that's different. That's sort of that you're getting into transcendent experiences. And that's <laughs> something that some of us were looking for something more, yeah. and, you know, it, but it's not really about speed at that point. It's, it's, it's looking for something else. It's looking for the, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something that I might not finish now. Whereas yeah. for me, a hundred miles, it's not a matter of whether I'll finish anymore. It's how fast can I do this in 23 hours versus 25 or whatever it might be. So it's really about dialing it in. Whereas you get into that 200 plus mile mark, you're into, you're into no man's land. You're anything could happen. Yeah. So that that's kind of the, that's sort of the typical ultra running. Now there's this other type of running, which is stage racing, which again, you might have races that are 200 miles or more, but they're broken up into stages. So instead of running four or five days continuously, you're running four or five stages over four or five days where the clock stops each day. So you go and you run hard, maybe run a marathon, you get back to camp, the clock stops and you get to sleep and recover, put your feet up and eat. And then you start again the next day and the clock starts again. So it's about that cumulative time. And that's what I did in, in Namibia. That's what racing Namibia was about. It was, a, it was about a stage race. Within stage racing, again, there's two kinds. There's the fully supported catered ones where you, you, you know, you're carrying your regular kind of day pack. And then at the end, there might be a buffet and a hotel or whatever. And then there's the self-supported ones. And again, that's what I did in Namibia. We carried all of our food, all of our sleeping and camping gear, everything for the entire week. How much the did only your thing, pack weigh? Yeah. Not to cut my you pack, off. My pack weighed about 18 pounds at the start of the week. And um, uh, about half of that was food. So maybe half of that by the end of the week. Now, for those of you, the listen, we, mm-hmm. for those of you listening, 18 pounds doesn't sound like much, but go on my YouTube channel. I just did a virtual race. I don't really believe in virtual races, but this one came across my Instagram timeline. I literally had to pay shipping for the metal, but I hold myself accountable. And it was a weighted vest run. And I have a weighted plate carrier vest with two eight and three quarter pound plates. So roughly about 18 pounds. Once again, I, I as I open up the show, I can go out, run a three mile race with no, just uh, three miles around my neighborhood. I uh, On an easy day, I average 940 1030 minute mile just not even pushing i put that 18 pound vest on my first mile was nine and a half then 11 and then i had to do 10 burpees but each between each one but that 18 pounds adds up and i had it distributed half in front half on back so i had better weight distribution but yours is all Mm -hmm. on your back and you're running through sand and you're running for long hours that 18 pounds feels more like 30 and credit to you and i'm watching some of the other people in the video they got they got looks more like 20 25 30 they got yoga mat tank off the bottom and like (laughs) there's a guy with a camping stove and a portable i mean some of those cats were like in it to win it and it's like jeff's got it sorted out you you and that's another great thing about your videos you show you have separate videos leading up to it showing your nutrition Mm which that's what i i when i first got into this i went whole hog when i had my kidney stones i swore off the soda and all that you can see a mountain dew in front of me now i was on water and gatorade for a year i live in florida we had a real bad hurricane i had no power no water for 16 days um i live on a well so no power means no water um kind of like with the pandemic bottled water was nowhere to be found so i would get Mm. up in the morning take a five gallon jerry can across the, the neighborhood, use it to flush my toilets. I had at the time, three parrots, um, five cats and two dogs. And so the water was being rationed. And so here in America and everywhere else, soda is plentiful, especially during a hurricane. So my year of being mm-hmm. on strictly water and zero Gatorade went away and now I'm struggling to get off the Mountain Dew, but my nutrition is garbage. And that's what I got to really focus on. And that's what I like about your videos too, is a lot of people don't realize especially when you're doing ultra marathon running, 
you got to have your calorie intake figured out and you have yours down to a science. You know how many calories you need every hour per per kilometer and you have it sorted out. And I'm sure that was through a lot of trial and error when you first got started in this where um, you don't, if your nutrition's not mm-hmm. right and you're, you're doing long distance, you will feel it and you will fail and you will feel starved and dehydrated. Yeah. There's something we, you know, I often say um, in ultra running, especially the longer the distance, the more this is true that ultra running at the end of the day is really an eating contest. And, you know, you know qualify that by saying you're not going to win by eating more, but you can lose by not eating enough. Mm-hmm. And what typically happens is people's stomachs will turn, right? They can't get calories down and they'll go hours without eating. And I'm talking, they're covering miles while yeah. doing this, right? So they're, and that's a bit of a downward spiral, downward spiral. Um, so that can make them have to drop out of a race or make them slow down. And the people who can just keep that food, those calories coming in, at least they're still in the game. Right. And the question is, have they trained? Can they run fast? But at least it's not going to hurt them by not eating. So again, those longer distance races, it's about who can, who can keep those calories coming in. Um, with the stage races, like racing with like Namibia, where you were carrying over on food, anything you eat, you got to carry. So it's now it's finding a balance. And this, this is something I've done through, through experience, right. Through learning the hard way, how much, how, how few calories can I get, can I get away with? We needed 14,000 calories for the week minimum. Um, and they checked and they added them all up. I carried about 16,000 for this race and I probably burned 40,000. Right. So, I mean, yeah. I'm way in deficit, but for me to carry 40,000, my pack would weigh, that'd be another 15, 20 pounds. Right. So, um, so it's about finding then, you know, you got to research, well, what has the best bang for buck? Okay. It's dehydrated cheese or, you know, whatever. Right. So you're looking for, you know, what has the most protein versus fat versus carbs versus the, it's le- a lot, the it, least amount it's of a weight lot to learn. Yeah. And, and how, how much it packs down as well. Right. Yeah. Cause you, it's not just about weight too. That's the other thing is, so my pack was 18 pounds, but it was only 25 liters in volume. Oh yeah. Um, so, so that's the other thing too, is how does it fit and how does it feel? And you know, there's that as well. So there's a lot to learn with these stage races. That's why it's, it's, it, it, I, I think it's pretty advanced. There's a lot of people who start with stage racing, which is great, but you're, you're biting off a lot. Um, you know, we do every day we're running about a marathon, but there's always one stage that's about 50 miles. And so for a lot of people, that's their longest run ever. And they're doing it on like day five with a pack, uh, which to me, I mean, that's commendable. I personally, I've, you know, running 50 miles is not the hard part for me. It's, it's all the other stuff that, that I'm trying to figure out. But for some people, if they've never even run that distance before, so they're, they're biting off a lot in those kind of races. When it comes to the stage races, like the ones where you run a marathon and you take a few hours off for the night Mm -hmm. instinctively you want to say, well, that's great. You can stop running. You can get some rest. But to me, it's like, is the, there's gotta be a little bit of negative because yeah, now you've stopped running. Your muscles are going to start cramping up and and then finding that motivation to get back up and running. Whereas when you maintain the run, you know, I'm sure there's pros and cons of both of them, but to me, it seems like, uh, can I just slay my sleeping bag for an extra 20 minutes? Yeah. And, yeah. And it's, it's harder. It, it, it's harder in different ways. Exactly. And that second day is always the hardest because you're stiff and you're sore by the third day. You start to feel like, okay, I, you know, I, I this is my life now, I guess. So, so <laughs> and running- by the fourth day you're, you start to feel stronger. You start your, your body actually is adapting by that, that by that time, because you are resting at night. But the differences with these other races where we're running throughout the night and we're, it's 
I mean, it's the same thing. If you stop, you start to cramp up and you start to swell up actually. Yeah. Um, so when I do, when I do have naps, I try to keep them to 45 minutes or an hour. Cause past that, my, I, I literally swell up, but also, I mean, now you're getting into that psychological territory of like your, your brain is shutting down and trying to shut your body down. It is not normal to go days without no. sleep. So it's, it's harder in a much different way. And now the other thing too, the stage races where you got to carry everything versus the long distance mm -hmm. running where you have a team waiting for you every eight to 10 miles. Um, once again, your pack has so much dimension versus weight. Now you're like, do I have room for an extra pair of shoes? Whereas when you have a team waiting for yeah. you in 10 miles and you've ran through creeks, okay, I got a pair of dry socks and a new pair of shoes waiting up here versus I got everything I have on my backpack. Uh, now I need to try to avoid getting wet feet and because I don't have mm -hmm. the luxury of changing socks and having a nice pair of shoes. Because I've watched some of those races, like a cat will go through like three pairs of shoes in one race because he has a team set up sure. and, it, and it has it available. So, yeah. and, and then you also have the luxury of have someone there willing to pop your blisters for you. Yeah. But, <laughs> and so there's clear, and, and when it comes to the YouTube videos, you know, sometimes I get disappointed where I'm watching these videos. Okay, I'm coming up to the, the aid station, and then they fast forward. So I, I want to see the people laying in the dirt misery. Yeah, I, I yeah. want to see what happens at the aid station. But I can imagine that when you're out there, and kind of going back to what you and I were saying earlier about video, especially in a race, it's like sometimes you got to, oh, yeah, I got to. I got to record this or I forgot to record mm -hmm. this or I just, I didn't care. I was focusing on the race, which here's a little bizarre question for you. I was watching your video earlier and I got to thinking, well, two questions. One, what camera are you using when you run? Because my GoPro mm -hmm. Hero 8 mounts is like a son of a gun, even though I have stabilization on. Uh, so what camera do you use when you're actually running? Uh, for, in Namibia, I use the GoPro Hero 10. Okay. Um, I, my, my years ago, I filmed my, my first couple of 200 milers I did with the GoPro six. I did a bunch of races with the eight. Um, and then, yeah, more recently the 10, the 10 is much better than the eight, but the eight does have really good stabilization. There's definitely a technique to kind of holding it. And, you know, I I've you've steady cams over the years and a bunch of things. So I think I have a pretty good technique there, but, um, the GoPro hero 10, the stabilization does a lot of the work. That was my follow-up question, which is going to be a little weird. Um, because when I started running, I would always carry a water bottle. I got a water mm -hmm. bottle. And then when I did my first Savage race, no water bottle. And for people who don't run a lot um, or haven't started, you kind of become a creature of habit. Like when you, run, when you <sighs> run your first race, you want to wear the same thing you're always wearing when you're running. Well, all of a sudden, now I'm running and I'm going to have this bottle of water in my hand. Have you gotten to the point where you can't run without holding a selfie stick? As, as weird <laughs> as that sounds, it's got to be. And, and here's why I say that, because I do a lot of fishing videos, right? And there's been times where my go I've already burned through five GoPro batteries. I'm having a bad day. I'll take the headset off. And then right before I go to cast, I go, I go to instinctively turn my GoPro mm. on, but it's not there because I've taken it off. And I'm like, because I'm so used to starting it at the beginning of cast. Part of me has to say when you go out and do just a an exercise run, there's part of you. Oh, I don't have my camera. I don't have to. You have yeah. to probably get used to holding your hand above your head for a period. No, of I mean, I mean to be, to, uh, you know, I say it like it is. Like uh, as much as I film and and uh, for all the films I've made, that represents a fraction of my time on feet. Sure, you know, I spend ten to thirty hours some weeks training, and um, I don't film the majority of that. Yeah. And even during a race, you know. Um, so Namibia, uh, or, or take a, take a film like from one of my 200 milers, you know, mm -hmm. where I was on feet for my first one was 107 hours of movement. 
Well, wow. the film was only 45 minutes and I only probably filmed a couple of hours. Sure. You know, so that that leaves 105 hours of that race where I didn't film. Um, you, you know, at the at the start here, we were talking about the amount of work that goes into these things and something that I do well, I think, um, because of because I'm a professional video producer is I do what's called shooting for the edit. So I usually film only what I need. And mm -hmm. I, I usually use almost everything I film. And part of that is because in the moments, I know already how I'm going to use it. I'm thinking, okay, I need a quick wide shot. Okay. And then I'm going to go in for a close up. Oh, you know what? That was bad. I'm going to redo that take. And then when I get back to the editing, editing room, I, I already know how, what, you know, how to build that story out. Yes. Some stuff hits the cutting room floor. Sometimes I do multiple takes. Sometimes I film for longer because yep. I don't know how much I need, but it's not like I'm sifting through you know, 10 times the amount of footage that, you know, and, and throwing most of it away. Well, that's kind of the advantage I have. My father worked for master food to make cow can uncle Ben's M&M's Mars. And when I was in middle school, he, he got tasked with filming some, um, training videos for the corporation mm -hmm. down in our basement. He built a set, had some lights and showing, you know, showing our age. He had a, our old school Zenith VCR that we had when I was in elementary school. And then he had this fantastic JVC VCR with the manual fast forward reel. Yeah. And the Zenith had an audio dub input on it. It had two RCA audio input in the back. And I started skateboarding in second grade. We had one of those RCA video cameras that actually took the full VHS tape you'd put up on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. So in middle school and high school, my brother and I would ride around. We would videotape. And then I would go home and I used to call the tape play because I didn't know how to turn the play icon off so when i was editing between the two vcrs every every time the scene started i'd say play up in the corner but then i could plug my <laughs> cd player in the back and overdub corn and music and so i'd actually put bootleg copyright and audio into these homemade skateboard videos and so doing that all those years and then eight semesters i took in photography class and then all the audio editing i say all that to say this i'm the same way when i i film and i preemptively think about what I'm going to edit, like especially with the fishing videos and my World War II videos. And mm -hmm. um, I tell people, when you go out there, like let's say you're just fishing or golfing or whatever, don't just sit recording and fish for four hours because when you get home, guess what that means? That means you got to watch mm -hmm. four hours worth of video to find those eight fish. And so mm -hmm. when I'm out there, after I catch a fish and I let go, I stop, wait 10 seconds and record. I've lost some fish doing that, but it's easier for me to go home, dump my GoPro, have... 50 clips go straight to the end no fish delete and it just speeds that yeah. process up because one of the hardest things about putting video together is the editing process and oh, the yeah. time that oh, takes yeah. and then the time to render it down and all that stuff and so mm -hmm. b-roll is good too um make sure you have some b-roll but yeah just think of think of it ahead of time especially someone who's putting out as many quality videos as you are well, thank you. And I, you know, I also script in advance, so I'll usually have my talking points pre-planned. So even going into Namibia, I had notes, literally, like I had a scrap of paper I carried with me and I was checking things off as I went, you know, it's like, okay, I got to remember to talk about, you know, my shoes at one point, I got to talk about this. I got to talk about that. I had, I had, you know, beats I wanted to hit. And sometimes I'll even take field notes with me about some of the history and stuff on my phone, you yeah. know, just so I can pull it up and, you know, not forget certain facts. Um, so I'm sort of scripting as I go as well. Um, you know, it's producing, right? It's not, you're not just, it, you know, documentaries aren't truth telling, they're storytelling. And sometimes, you know, you, you choose what to omit, you choose what to include, you're making editorial decisions just by means of when you're turn, hitting record. Yeah. You know, it, so, so the editorial decisions are starting on the day, and then they're finishing in the edit suite.
Um, so yeah. And then, you know, and as far as what I film, I mean, that's the other challenge you mentioned this before as well. Like I'm still trying to figure this part out is how do I film in those moments when filming is the last thing I want to do. Mm -hmm. And there are, you do see some of those moments in my films, but there are other moments where I don't film. There's times where I'm in danger, potentially I'm, I'm being chased off a mountain peak by lightning. Well, the last thing I'm going to do is turn the camera on. Yeah. But then later I think, ah, shoot, I should have at least hit record and left it in my pocket for the audio. Right. Or there's times when I hit a real low point and, you know, I, and I'm just all, all, it's all I can do to just keep moving. And again, I'm just in that moment. Filming is the last thing on my mind. And that's the downside to my films are a little bit unique in that they are showing these ultra endurance events, but from my perspective, whereas yeah. most films, especially the higher quality ones are other filmmakers, filming runners. So they're there to hit record and, and document those, you know, when the guy's puking or whatever, mm -hmm. whereas for me, there is nobody there. It's, it's, it's just me. Yeah. So it, it works well in some cases. I think people love that first person perspective, but it also, unfortunately there are moments I miss. And then plus there's kind of moments where you feel responsible, like, okay, yeah. I'm doing good, but this person running behind me, they're struggling. They may yeah. have, has there been times where someone says, Hey, can you put the camera away? I don't want to be in your video looking like I just fell down, a uh, <laughs> fell down a ravine. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, fortunately people, nobody's had to say that because yeah. I usually preempt it. Like usually I, I can feel it where it's like, ah, oh, it would just be awkward to pull the camera out now. Or yeah, yeah that, he, that person's puking. I'm not going to film them unless literally I ask permission, but yeah. Um, yeah. It, so exactly. There, there's times when it just, you know, the other thing that's tough too, is when I'm having a conversation with somebody, sometimes the last thing I want to do is pull out a camera and ruin that vibe. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll then say, you know, this is really cool. Can you just repeat that for me for the camera? Well, it's never the same. No, right? it's not. So there's things too, you just miss yeah. and, and that stuff. And then there's things that I choose to omit, right? There's, there are moments, you know, again, go, I, there's one that always will always stand out for me in, in Switzerland when I did the Swiss peaks, 360 K. Um, so 220 miles, that's that one that I said took, you know, close to five days. And I remember this one moment in the middle of the night, um, I'd just gone through this huge mountain pass, going through this boulder field, just really technical. It's pitch black. And I, you know, I hadn't had water in a while and I was just, I was just struggling and I was kind of playing yo-yo with this guy. Uh, we had been for days and a uh, bit of a language barrier there. So it was mostly just kind of grunts and nods and, mm -hmm. you know, um, we, but we were, we were, you know, we were bonded just through that shared experience. And I arrived at this, there was this like cabin in the middle of nowhere and there was a picnic bench and they had put out a few um, thermoses of tea. And there was a little note there saying, help yourself with a bunch of glasses. Wow. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to help myself to some tea. And then he came up behind me and I sort of gestured and he sat down with me and we both just sat there for like five minutes, turned off the headlamps. And all of a sudden it was just the most beautiful sky I've ever seen. You know, we're at like 3000 meters. There's no light pollution in the middle of the Alps. And it's just this incredible, you know, and we just sat there and drank tea in silence. And then at some point, I think one of us just kind of looked and said, okay, okay, I guess it's time to race again. And then the race is back on, right? And we took off. Um, in that moment, you know, I would have loved to have captured that somehow. I, I would have ruined it by pulling up the camera, yeah. right? Like, so that one, that one was just for me. Like that, that's, you're, you know. you're having this moment and then you hear beep, 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 beep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. GoPro, start yeah. recording. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, two things. When you transition from your 5k days and your 10k days to the ultra marathon how do you get past that point where every runner has and i still struggle uh, there's actually a savage race this weekend that i'm not doing for the first time mm -hmm. in two years because i told myself my fitness ain't where i want it to be i know i can yeah. do the race but my goal now is 
100% completion of obstacles first try or cut time off. And since I know yeah. my fitness level isn't where I want it to be, I know I won't hit my goal. And so in my mind, I would be essentially wasting money. Um, when you make that transition from you know shorter races to long races, how do you convince yourself to, hey, slow down. Mm-hmm. This race is 38 hours. You ain't got to worry about your pace as much. Obviously, if you're street running a 5K, 10K, half marathon, you just you you, you don't even want to stop to urinate in the yeah. porta potty. Whereas I watch these, I watch your old videos, and I tell myself when I'm, it's like, dude, you're running three miles fitness regiment just so you can keep your weight off. You don't have to do a nine minute mile. Take your time. Slow yeah. down. Yes, you're racing yourself, but this is a fitness exercise. These cats are out doing these ultra marathons. They're not flooring their pace the whole time. They know it's how do you get to that point where you're just like, slow down. It's the distance. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, I can't stay in zone four the whole time. You know, how do you get, how do you force yourself past that? Cause I know a lot of runners, they all have that PR, PR, PR. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And to me, I got to force myself to slow down. Take your time. Yeah. You know, I think that comes with experience, um, especially, you know, something like a hundred mile race. Yeah. It's so difficult to pace that, you know, cause you're, you know, that idea of pacing, like, okay, how, how, you know, should I slow down? Should I speed up? That's a decision you have to make in that moment. And that's a decision you're making a thousand times mm-hmm. over the course of 24 hours, you know, where you're, you know, slowing yourself down, speeding, you know, oh, I got to get out of this aid station. I got to keep moving. You're, you're constantly throttling back or trying to push yourself. And it's hard to find a sweet spot because, you know, if it's one thing, if you're just trying to finish, in which yeah. case yeah, you probably can't go slow enough, just don't, you know, fight the cutoffs. But, yeah. but if you're trying to, if you're trying to do well, if you're trying to hit top 10 or podium or win a race, it's a real line. And a lot of the elites, you know, a lot of these, these, these guys and girls, they go out hard and then they blow up, mm-hmm. but they do it two or three times in a row. And the fourth time they nail it yeah. and they win and it's, they go down in the history books, but those th- other three times they drop. Personally, I don't like dropping from races, but I'm also not trying to win the race. Um, I think you do have to put it all on the line if you're trying to win these things. They're pretty competitive. But for me, I like a top 10 finish or a top 10% maybe finish, you know, whatever the field size is. And so it does mean I have to run, but I got to run smart. So, and that's something you learn over time. You know, what is too fast? What is too slow? How, what does it feel like to properly pace a hundred miler? I mean, you're out there for 24 hours. What does that feel like? You, you, you learn that over time. And speaking of pace, uh, we haven't really brought this up, but there is, ironically, the role of a pacer in these long-distance running mm. races. Um, they usually come in a halfway point, right? Obviously, you don't need a pace yeah. at the beginning of the race. It's when you're, okay, um, I need, kind of like we were saying earlier, maybe that a miniature version of the pack instinct, just having someone there to to run behind. Someone, their job is to obviously not push you at your fastest pace, but help keep you in that pace that you need to make, to prevent from getting that cutoff. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the job, first of all, can depend on the, the situation. It can depend on the runner. Some people want a runner or pacer to be in front, literally setting the pace, mm-hmm. literally as a pace setter, like a NASCAR, you know, the first lap, I think of a NASCAR race or, you know, in the, in a, in a road marathon, there's these formal pacers who wear special bibs. Um, other people want them to run behind. Um, if you're having a hard time, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, just tell me, tell me some jokes, you know, just tell me some stories, just keep my brain occupied. Um, they might be there to help keep you on course, uh, for safety reasons. Again, there's safety in numbers, but pacers are, are uniquely North American thing. Really? In Europe, most, most of the races in Europe do not allow pacers. I was going to say, do they look like cheating almost? 
So yeah, it, it is a bit of an advantage. There's a few. There's a few things there though. So um, in Europe, there's um, there's less risk. The the trails there, um, you know, there's some big gnarly climbs, and you're going through the mountains and stuff. But the trails are pretty well established. They're well marked. There's no bears to speak of. There's no, you know, there, there there's you know, you might get lost, but in the next little valley, there's another little village, right? Yeah. So there's refugio at the top of the mountain. Um, whereas in North America, I mean, here in British Columbia, you know, lots of places in the US, when you run, you're out there on your own for miles, right? And there's wildlife, there can be grizzly bears. So you can get lost, you can, you know, there's lots of dangers that don't exist in Europe. The field sizes tend to be larger there. So you can have races that are, you know, again, an ultra marathon in the US, maybe there's 150 people towing the line. The same race in Europe, 1,500, you know, maybe even 5,000 wow. for some of these really large races, completely different experience, sure. completely different experience. You know, you're in a, you're in a train of people for most of the time. Um, we're doing, my girlfriend, Audrey and I are doing a race called the UTMB, uh, the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc coming up in August. And it's like the Super Bowl of mountain running. It's like, there's going to be 5,000 runners. We start and finish in Chamonix and we run around Mont Blanc and it's going to be crazy and it's a mountain race, but we're going to be, there's going to be people the entire time and there are no pacers allowed that that's a hundred miles. So, um, I I've, uh, I've only had pacers a couple of times in my running career, um, a, a couple hundred milers here in the U S and that was really it. Um, everything else I've done, my multi-day races, my 200 milers, it's been on my own and I have been on my own for, you know, eight, 10 hours at a time in those races. And it's, it's different. It's, 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 it's a different challenge. I like, I like that being alone sometimes it's, yeah. um, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, I'm not alone much. So it's nice sometimes being out on your own for, you know, you're kind of in your head and that can be, that can be nice sometimes. Two things. One, before I forget, congratulations to Audrey for first place in the women's, but what, what 14th yeah. place overall. Yeah. So yeah. That, 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 that was at her first, her first hundred miler in Quebec here, the Quebec mega trail. Yeah. Prior to that, what was her normal? Was she doing a lot of 50 milers or it was. She had done a couple of big races in Europe that were very similar. So close to a hundred miles, like we're talking 70, 80 miles, but sure. in big mountain climbs yeah. where she was out there for 35, 35 hours. Right. So, so the time actually, it, it actually didn't take her much longer to do this one than she had been on feet before, but it was a little bit longer in distance, but you know, it, it's, she, she, she was prepared. She was prepared. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, some of those you're, you're talking about like over in Europe, how they might have 1500 people. And then that's when they would yeah. do. A stage race and a different version which means okay 50 people are gonna leave at this time 50 people leave three minutes later because otherwise especially i've seen some of these races where everybody leaves at once and then you guys get bottlenecked on a single track trail that's, for like that's two. what happens yeah. how frustrating is that <laughs> yeah. where like you're in the back of the pack and you get bottlenecked for like three miles on single track trail it's like oh I, yeah and and they're not running the pace in which you're comfortable at so now you're slowing yourself down and you just Mm -hmm. It's like, do I risk running through the woods and tripping, or do I just hold my pride, suck yeah. it up, and suffer through this three miles until I can get around people? That's got to be yeah, so what, hard. What you're talking about is a, is a wave start, and some races do that. But no, most races in Europe, they like the big mass start. It looks great from a helicopter on, you know, on sure. camera, right? So they love their wave starts there. So at the, t at the front, you got the elites. You know, they're right at the front. And then everybody else kind of self-seeds usually. Um, my, my first European race was the Tour de Jean. That was my first 200 miler. It was 205 miles. Um, and that was in the Italian Alps. Um, I have a film about that on my channel and you'll see that we leave in one big mass start, 900 or 850 of us, right. Running through these little cobble street towns. Um, really exciting. Everybody goes out super hard. 
And then you hit the first climb and it's a bottleneck and oh. it grinds to a halt and oh. it's single track. And I was like, oh, what was, I should have went up, you know, but I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm filming. And, yep. and then I was like, oh damn, I should have been up there at the front, yep. but whatever. I was like, I got, I have four days left of running. I mean, I'm not in a hurry. Could I'm be worse. Pass, you could I'm going to pass most of these people anyway. Like, like I finished in 64th. So, I mean, I, I passed the majority of the field, even though I, you know, I was, ha- it was mid pack. So I, I passed 400 people in that race basically. <laughs> Nothing hurts worse than what happened to me in my half marathon. Um, I don't know, close to, you know, I'm six, seven miles into it. I'm feeling good, but I'm running over my fourth bridge, maintaining a pace that I'm happy with. And then here comes a dad with a stroller running right past oh. me. Like, <laughs> really, fella, you, you, you got to make me hurt that much more. Not yeah. only are you passing me on the bridge, but you're pushing your kid in one of these super ultra fancy bike strollers with the, you know, the 13 inch rims on it. And you're just crushing my pace and meanwhile i'm I'm sitting here dying yeah so at least you're not getting passed by a guy walking his dog or with a stroller no but i I have learned not to judge people by their age because like you said the longer the race the more it seems to um benefit people with experience not fitness it's all about experience and if you guys want a perfect example of this and it's truest form is watch his nine part series of the i keep killing the name because my my Namibia, Namibia, yeah. my horrible Florida, ac- my, well, I grew up in Kentucky. So my Kentucky, Florida accent, N- no spoilers. I want you guys to watch this video, but let's just yeah, say someone close to the you'll top of podium is right in here mm-hmm. and has a whole history that if you mm-hmm. go by what people would say, this person should have never even a run the race, let alone mm-hmm. actually there's two people in there. Actually yeah. three. I'm thinking of the third. There's a bunch yeah. of people in that video who, if you saw them walking down the street, you would consider them, you know, oh, there's no way they might go yeah. out and run. A f- no, there are some, it, there are some truly inspiring people in that video. And, and that's probably for the video aspect. That's probably the nice thing of a stage race like that. Well, good and bad. You have time to sit down and interview people, but yes. Do yeah. they have the energy to do the interview? There's been times where I'll take my mobile podcast studio in a box from my what's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and I'll go out to World War II reenactment weekends. But after we've been out in the woods for four hours, no one wants to sit down and do an hour-long interview. <laughs> and so I can only imagine somebody running for 13 hours. I could either sit yeah. here and talk to Jeff, or I can go there and prop up my feet and pop my blisters. What do I want That's to right. Do? That's right. Yeah, and and you'd be surprised. I mean, there's there's time, sure, because we we you know I'd finish it. 1 p.m. each day and then there's the rest of the day but you know you have things to do you're you got to get your feet up you got to eat have a nap you know people are finishing at different times Mm -hmm. and you're cheering them on as they come across and and um and actually we were battling weather a lot of the time it would get really windy in the afternoon and so i i I was having a hard time doing any, any interviews you know it was just too noisy but what you mentioned there and there's there's a couple parallels here um and that i tried to capture in my film and the first one is this idea that you, I had more time to film, but that's because you have more time to get to know people in the first place. And that's what makes these races so special. Community. Normally with an ultra marathon, you show up, you got about an hour, you're nervous. You're looking, oh, hey, buddy. Oh, I recognize that. Guy. And then you start the race, you finish. Maybe you got a couple hours at the end, have a beer at the finish line, but people tend to rush home. Mm-hmm. But this time, no, I mean, you're camped out. We had two days before the race started just to get to know each other. And then of course we had seven days plus we partied for a couple of days after. So we really got to know everybody in this race. And normally these racing the planet events have about hundred to 130 people. 
this one only had 31 because of COVID, but we, those 31 people, we all, we all got to know each other. So in the same way that you as the viewer get to know people, that's what it felt like to be there in a different way than most races feel. And then the second thing, and the thing that I really wanted to bring into this was the feeling of a stage race, which again is you race hard. You know, we're running a marathon at close to marathon pace in the desert for four to four and a half hour marathons and in blazing heat in the sand, which is pretty, pretty quick with, with the pack. And then we, then we rest, you, you, you sleep, you reset and you do it again the next day. So the episodic format, I wanted the viewer to have the same feeling. I wanted you to have a chance to watch my episode, have a couple days to, you know, maybe think about it, maybe not. And then go, Oh, there's a new episode and come back to it. Cause that's how it felt to, to run the race. Whereas for me to try to condense that into say, even if it was a two hour film and you'd watch it all in one sitting, it would betray that feeling, right? It wouldn't be that it's, that's not how these races feel. They're not one big action packed moment. It's, it's, over, you experience the race over the course of the week. So I wanted, I wanted viewers to experience that as well. So if you are going to go back now, you know, I, I released these twice a week. They're all up there now. Mm-hmm. I would definitely say, don't watch them all at once. You know, it's no. a lot of content anyway. Yeah. You don't it, want to be hard to watch it. them all at once, but, but, you know, try to space them out a little bit because again, that's how it feels to, to run these. And, yeah. and then the, the third thing that I'll just say real quick is, is it's the travel aspect. So that idea of, you know, experiencing the culture in the country, again, that's, what's so great about these kind of races. They call them racing the planet for a reason, right? They're all over in the, in the most remote corners of the world. And so I wanted the film again to really, you know, it, how could I have just started it with the start of the race and finished yeah. it with the end? It, I'd have to show the country to some, some degree, because that's the experience of doing these races. Uh, two things. One, if you are a binge watch type person, I strongly suggest you watch episode one and then go watch another video on Jeff's page. He's got plenty of videos and then maybe wait a day and and truly let it sink in. Um, question about the video. Were you happy with your shoe choice? I know episode one, you're like, okay, ah. there's a lot of sand. Um, I, I was planning on wearing this shoe, but maybe I'm going to wear this shoe. And you kind of MacGyvered yourself kind of like a, a sand spat ordeal. How did that work out when it was yeah. all said and done? Were you happy? It with was that? good. It was good. I, yeah, I was really happy. I wore the Solomon uh, S lab cross two. It's got a built-in gator and a gusseted tongue, which means there's, there's basically no way that sand can get into this shoe. I was a little bit worried it would be too hot. It wasn't, it worked out perfectly. Um, the sand is the biggest challenge with running in the desert of course well, that and the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's all about how do you keep the sand out? And there's these special gators you get that cover your shoe and people, they glue them on, they sew them on there and they, they always fall off. They never work. Um, not I, to, not, I didn't have to use any of that stuff. It not to works, be mean. So. Um, cause I don't know the lady, but we're carrying our watching it. And there's one lady yeah. kind of standing off to the left of one of the frames and she, she must have one of these, you're, we thought she was wearing like some moon boots. I mean, her yeah. the gators on her. <laughs> they look pretty funny. It yeah. looked it looked like yeah. she was wearing like Mickey Mouse s style. Like, and I, and I got to think, well, maybe she's wearing those because wider is better. Her feet won't sink down on this. I I, I was like, it, it, we almost rewound it. Like, I got to get a better shot of this chick's shoes because she had some yeah. sort of thing going on. But clearly, she. Well, the fact that she's in the race means that anything I can make fun of, I'm just stupid. Um, but yeah, you, you see the uh, people's style of trying to combat sand Yeah. And, and, but how racing the planet, obviously you can't just be some Joe Schmo say, okay, I'm going to register for racing the planet. I'm going to pay the entry fee and fly off to the other side. What is the qualifying procedure or the certain qualifying races? How does that work? Cause obviously 
like I just said, not just anybody. You, I'm sure they make sure you have some sort of experience in long distance running. No, actually, really? actually, no. Racing the planet, you don't. Racing the planet are very accessible races, and there, there's, I'd say, there's two, maybe, maybe three races going on there. There's those of us who are racing for the podium, and I definitely include myself in that. I mean, I've got my splits figured out. I'm looking at last year's times. I got, you know, trying to shave off every ounce, every gram. Um, then there's the people in the middle who are, who they're, they're running, they're trying to get it done, but they're trying to get it done in a respectable time, but they, they're not, they're racing you know, they're themselves. Not, they're racing themselves. Exactly. They're racing the clock. And then there's the people who just want to finish. Some of them have never even run maybe a marathon before, yet alone an ultra marathon. That's crazy. Those are the ones where their packs are probably a little bigger than they need to be. You know, they're carrying some luxury items. And, um, <laughs> but Hey, so- you know what though? They're, they're working harder than I am because I'm trained and I've got, you know, for me, it's just about execution. Um, I'm not sort of discovering anything out there necessarily. I'm just executing a plan and I'm also getting done. And I say, I, I, th- those of us towards the front, we're getting done before the hottest time of the day. Mm-hmm. So yes, it got to 47 degrees Celsius. And I apologize. I don't know how hot that is in Fahrenheit on the one day, but not while I was out there, I was already at camp before I got into the forties, but there were people out there in that heat. And those are those people towards the back of the pack every day. And that compounds that adds up and their feet are just blistered. And, you know, so they're, they're having a, they're, they're pushing through a lot of pain. You That's know? 104. That's 104 Fahrenheit. That's hot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like exposure, like, like, like just blazing heat. So the short answer is anybody can do it. Um, But it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. And going back to where you're saying the, the, the casual runner who's doing that. Mm -hmm. um, The great thing about runners is the community. And you can always tell a runner versus a non-runner just in out in general public. Let's say you're driving down the street and a van full of four people, five people, 10 people, a party van. And you see the person jogging down the side of the road that you can clearly tell, you know, maybe they're a few pounds overweight. The person who sticks their thumb, gives them the thumbs up. That's the guy in the van who runs because we all yeah. know regardless of what that person looks like, they're out there doing it where the rest of us are sitting yeah. in this van. And so you can always tell, cause you'll be out running the guy driving by honking. Oh, that's a runner. They don't know me. That's, yeah. that's a runner. And, and it's so crazy. I'll go downtown Fort Myers and run over Edison Bridge. I'm running a path and people walking the other direction. I just kind of give them a thumbs up or a knowing, a knowing nod. Mm-hmm. And if they're a regular runner, they'll do the same thing. And once again, yeah. you can tell the people who just started because they look like, I don't know you. Let me alone. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. They, they haven't learned yet. There's a community. There's a bond, right? There's, you know. Yep. And they're also the ones that you're running on a bike trail and there's a concrete wall and you're edged all the way up against it because they're walking shoulder to breast and yeah. they instead of falling back and getting in line to give you at least a quarter of it, they make you run sideways it's like how much yeah, room do you need you know go, going back to that the qualifications there there are though um because it's a good question and and your question has sort of uh you know uh something built in there which is this assumption because a lot of races you do need to qualify for yeah and typically the more uh, sought after races are the hardest to get into because there's a limited number of participants who can do it. The Boston marathon is a good example, sure. but Boston marathon, 30,000 people, I think run it or 25,000. Whereas the hard rock 100, which is the race I've been trying to get into for six years, only 120 people can wow. do it. And that's in the San Juan mountains in Colorado. And it's an incredible event. Just, it's got so much history, you know, 25 years of history and it's really hard to get into. So it's the people who get into that race are the cream of the crop. Western States is another example of that. 
When I say it's hard to get into, I mean, you have about a 0.7% chance of getting into it your first year. By my sixth year now, I have about a 5% chance of getting into the stupid lottery. And wow. I apply every year That's crazy. and I have to requalify every second year for Westerners every year by doing another race, a hundred mile race that proves that I can, you know, just to qualify to then put my name into a lottery. So some of these races are really hard to get into, uh, again, racing the planet. They're not, um, they're not cheap, but, um, you know, that's why it's a great, it's a great place to start. It's a great thing to put on your schedule because you're, you know, you, you're guaranteed. You just got to put in the work. You got to put in the training and the preparation forgive me because i'm new to the world of ultra racing what is the one i think it's in colorado where the the logo is like a jackass it's a it's a donkey um it's like one of the harder races oh which one is i sorry i forget the name of it but there's one particular race I, like when, when you see him going like the logo oh, oh i'm not sure oh, is, is that maybe what yeah i'm not sure I is think, that one of the borough races there's actually races that you do with donkeys no the, the no it's <laughs> i think it's in colorado it's like a hundred miler but um i can't oh, remember, i'm not sure which I one i can't that remember the name of yeah. it um here's here's a weird question i don't know if you're into the ocr world or not but from canada are you familiar with Lindsay, Lindsay webster and uh her husband ryan atkins no these no. two are basically the king and queen of the ocr world they finish all the obstacle, whether it's Spartan. Sorry, that's obstacle courses? Obstacle no, races. that's sort of a different, a little bit of a different world from trail running. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I understand that, but these, these guys are the king yeah. and queens are always coming first mm -hmm. place and all, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, they live up in Canada. They're always out running in the mountains and, and kind oh, of yeah. going back to what we were saying at the beginning, they're in their late twenties, early thirty now. I wouldn't be surprised when, uh, Lindsay and uh, Ryan Atkins get to late thirties, early forties. If you don't see them showing up in the ultra marathon running yeah. world, because they're already, I mean, they train r trail running all the time. And, you know, mm -hmm. like I said, they, um, Spartan games are going to come on YouTube. Um, they, they first started it during the pandemic when there was no races. And so mm -hmm. the owner of Spartan has a, uh, couple hundred acres out in like Virginia or somewhere. So all these, they got ultra marathoners, they got uh, triathletes, they got ex-football players, they got OCR athletes, and they kind of wanted to see who was the toughest athlete by mixing all the, you know, they made them go out and ride mountain bikes for, you know, 15 miles one day, and the next day they had to swim, then they do like wrestling, and then all these different events to come up with, with the number one person, and um, season two is getting ready to come out, and like they have them, okay, today you're going to do a trail run wearing a 30 pound weighted vest. And so it's okay. Yeah. And him, Ryan Atkins and, and I wouldn't be surprised as they get older and they, yeah. they, they probably, I wouldn't be surprised transition into that world because they're already crushing on the OCR circuit and, uh, nice. Yeah. But, and, and all that good stuff. But, um, Oh, I had one other thing on here. I wanted to bring up before I let you go. And, and I do greatly appreciate you coming out here. Oh, Another weird question, but for people like me, I live in Florida. It's hot as hell down here. Uh, you talked on your um, one of your videos about how when it's humid, it's harder to cool mm -hmm. down. Your body exerts. You know, I was saying 104 degrees is hot. I'm running down here in August. I, I usually wait at night, so it's only a cool 92 degrees. But um, salt pills, why are they important and which the best brands? Because I've actually looked for some before doing a Savage Race here in Florida and it's like um, some people call them, you know, different names. What? Yeah. What? How can people go about, and why is it important, especially in long distance and heat, the importance of salt pills? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, bigger picture is, is what you actually need are electrolytes and yeah. salt is one of them. There's other electrolytes, magnesium, calcium, uh, potassium, uh, salt is the one you need the most of. It's the one you lose the most of during exercise. Um, things like potassium are more important for rec muscle recovery and things, but electrolytes basically are, you know, day to day, we all get a lot of salt. We get a lot of minerals through our normal diets. And there's this natural balance. This is equilibrium typically between the water level and the salt levels in your blood. And so, um, but what happens when you run is that you start to sweat a lot and you lose a lot of those salts and those minerals, those electrolytes. You might drink a lot of water to compensate for the, the sweating and, and your, and your, you know, your, just your thirst. But if you're not drinking a sports drink or taking a salt pill, an electrolyte pill, then what you're actually doing is watering down your blood, your blood levels, your, your electrolytes go out of, out of whack. They go to, out of balance. And this is something that we as a society, I think only learned in like the nineties, there were people dying at marathons wow. because they'd come so dehydrated and they would force feed them water without electrolytes. And they would get hyponatremia, which is again, it's, it's, it's too much water. They'd, they'd be over hydrated literally. And so we, we learned from this and now there's these, you know, Gatorade, things mm -hmm. like that, sports drinks, they work, you know, they work well. Now when in, in, in performance, uh, you know, high, high endurance, uh, high performance endurance athletics, there's other drinks on the market better than Gatorade. I would say, sure. I mean, they're, they're, they're formulated. They they're easier on the GI, maybe a little bit less sugar. Uh, but basically at the end of the day, it's all salty water with some, with some food coloring. Um, so that's one way to do it is to drink, um, to drink, you know, a sports drink, but you can also take, like you said, salt pills or electrolyte pills. Um, they, they usually are, they might be called salt pills or salt sticks. I use a brand called, um, Oh, actually, I can't even remember what it's called. I, to be honest, I don't have a preference. I just buy whatever I can find on Amazon or sure. my local running, my local running store. They're usually, like I said, mostly salt, but other electrolytes as well. Um, and that's all that is, is that I just find it easier to be able to just drink water, pull water from a Creek, for example, with my filter and then pop a, a salt pill. Cause I can think about how I can think, okay, I, I need to pop one of these for every two bottles I drink or two of these an hour, whatever it is, whatever the formula is you've arrived at, it's not an exact science. Um, it's easier for me to just use those salt pills, but again, you can use sports drinks instead. Um, so yeah, so that's what that is. Um, and it's not table salt. It's, it's these, th these pills that are easy to digest and you just pop them. Um, you know, the, the other thing people can do is you can get that through your diet. So, or, or through the food you're eating at aid stations. So it's not uncommon at uh, trail races to have, for example, potatoes that are baked potatoes dipped in salt at an aid station pickles, <laughs> right? Pickles have a lot of electrolytes. Um, so I'll sometimes try to get salty foods in as well, uh, during a race. And that's another way to get your electrolytes up. No, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because yeah. I wanted to ask you earlier, what does a mashed potato burrito taste like? <laughs> I've I've heard people talk about packing mashed potato burritos for, uh, for running well, mashed potatoes for stage races are really good because dehydrated potatoes rehydrate really well and, and are quite uh, efficient in terms of carbs and, you know, getting some starches, they don't weigh a lot. Um, anyway, that's, so that, that's something that's one of those things, right? It's as long with your nutrition, you talk, we talk about hydration and hydration part and parcel of that is your electrolyte balance along with your water intake. That's one of the things that took me a while. It wasn't until my third, before I did my third Savage Race, I started, okay, why are my hands cramping up? 
well, how mm. do I prevent lactic acid buildup? And then I, I finally, after two, run, two of these races and like my hands cramped like any after the, you know, mm-hmm. mile six and the 15th obstacle when my calves cramping up, I finally started doing research. You figure out what I'd done that on race one, but no, race three was for me because, well, I'm slow like that. And I started researching how do I prevent lactic acid buildup? Well, it's all about hydration before the race. During the race, you want to take a goo or whatever. Um, I've had Vinny Tortridge on the show. He um, basically uh, runs and he's the creator of the No Sugar, No Grain movement, and he has a product okay. called the Ultra Fat Nut Butter, which he does long-distance um, bike races and uh, kayak events, and he mm-hmm. he has this great product called Ultra Fat Nut Butter. So I got some of those, and I got a couple of different other sort of goos. Um, and so before the race, I was down in water and Gatorades, and I'd walk through the vendor area, and whatever free crap they'd give me, I would down, and then during the race, I would pop one of these. And that was the race three was the first time I didn't have lactic acid buildup because I actually did some planning, thought about my nutrition. I didn't just show up and drink some water and go run and, and cramp up. And mm-hmm. so that definitely nutrition is huge. But one of the things I also discovered is you've got to be careful. Some of those, those running goos require consuming water while taking it. Yeah. Some of them don't. And so you need to, well, most, most do because you need a certain amount of water. I think it's a 10 to one ratio of water, water to carbs. So you need, uh, water to digest carbohydrates. Yeah. You can't just, and that's, that's one of the reasons why they, you know, it's actually, so you absorb the carbs, but also for your GI, because yeah, you can get, you can get sick and you can take too much salt. I mean, I've seen people do that too, where they get an upset stomach because they overdid it on the, on the salt pills too much of a good thing. So that's, I mean, you gotta learn and you gotta learn that stuff the hard way. And that's where this experience comes. And this is why, you know, especially with ultra running, there's so many variables and it's um, and, and that's a good thing. You know, you, you, you said this earlier, you alluded to this fact that with the road marathon, it's, you know, it's, it's minutes you're talking about shaving off seconds, but if you stop to use the Porter potty, you're screwed. There, there goes your PB, you know, ah, I was going to, I was going to go sub three and now I'm three Oh three. Whereas in an ultra marathon, you're out there for 24 hours. I mean, you stop to use the bathroom. Like that's not, yeah. it, it, you know, what you're trying to do is shave off, not seconds, but you know, minute, cause minutes do turn into hours, but you're talking about, you know, okay, instead of 10 minutes at every aid station, I'm going to spend five and you know, things like that. Um, but the, the, the benefit there, like the real positive part is that you can have a real low point. And, you know, we like to say, like, if you're, if you're having a low point, just wait an hour. And the flip side is if you're having a real high point, just wait an hour, right? You go through these ebbs and flows and, and you always come out of it. You're never, your race is never over unless you miss the cutoff. I've seen people like they're like, literally they were at the front, they get lost, they get, they get sick. They, you know, and all of a sudden, 10 hours later, here they are returned from the dead, just like, back at the front of the pack, anything can happen out there. And that's the, the longer the race, the more true that is. And that's why even, even these trail races can be adventures. You just, Mm -hmm. you never know what you're going to get weather wise, you know, you never know how your body's going to react, your feet, your stomach, and you learn so much about yourself. you learn so much about the sport. Um, you know, it's a new adventure every time. And that's one of my things I enjoy. Like I said, I did that virtual thing the other day. I did it because, okay, it, Here's motivation. I know that me personally, because I've done it before, running three miles with a weighted vest, it kicks my ass, and I want to kick yeah. my ass so that I can get better at getting my ass kicked. So then it's not so painful. And I and I'm one of those people. I like the pushing myself to my limits to see yeah. what I'm made up, especially as I'm getting older. Why do you do this stuff? So that I know that I can. Okay, <laughs> leave me alone. Mm-hmm. But you know, back to the Barkley Marathon. 
there was nothing more heartbreaking than seeing Gary Robinson lose that by six seconds, that cutoff. Yeah, and that so Gary is a Vancouver athlete. He's a good, he's a good friend of mine. Um, and Gary uh, Gary Robbins. He uh, what really happened was he got um, turned around, didn't he? He he actually went off course. So yeah. he even if he wasn't six seconds over the cutoff, he actually he took a wrong turn at the end. So he would have been yeah. disqualified anyway. Yeah. So it it made for a better story that it was the six second things, but it that wasn't quite the whole story. Um, the Barkley Marathons is a unique race because it. You know, there's all these um, there's all these variables in a race, right? It's how how hilly, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it self-supported, or can you have a pacer? Is it at altitude or is it at sea level? Is it flagged? And the Barkley Marathons has no flagging, so you got to navigate your way through that course. And each time you you go a different direction, and at the end you have to. If there's two people going out at the same time, they have to go in different directions. You got to yep. be on your own for that last lap. But it also, it's, it's a very difficult course. It's, it's on, there's a lot of climbing and descending. It's, it's, it's and you only have, yeah. And you only, ha, you, you, there's a, there's a, a, a limit of time, which at first sounds like a lot, you know, people look at that and think like, oh, I can, you know, but you go days without sleep um, because there isn't time to sleep. There just isn't time and there's no margin for error. And that's what makes this race so hard. And that's why something like only nine people have ever finished it. Yeah. And every time somebody finishes it, they make the course harder. It's it's this is the race that you do to just see if you can finish it. It's not about how fast, unlike almost every other race out there, which is really about, you know, like I said, like for me, a hundred miler, it's 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 how quickly can I finish it at this point? You know, I've done a half dozen of these things. Um, but that race, it's could I even get through three laps, yet alone five? Well, you um, know, and the yeah. joke with that one is is when you get accepted to run the race, which by the way, there is no registration <laughs> process. You have to know somebody who knows somebody that knows somebody. Yeah. They actually send you a letter of condolence. But um, it's yeah. kind of an anti-race from the word go. They just say, yeah. show up on this day. And the race will start anywhere between, all oh, I don't know, 9 a.m. and midnight. So you don't know when the race there is going to go. start. you got to sleep in a tent. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no maps posted on the internet. When you show mm-hmm. up, we're going to put a map on the table. It's your job to copy it as accurate as you can. Uh, no GPS is allowed. You can have a compass. Yeah. And as you said, the trails aren't marked, and it's um, you have a time limit. And uh, wait for that conch shell to blow, and then that gives you an hour, and then wait for that cigarette to get lit and, and get the hauling ass. And it's yeah. it, 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 it's a great – there's quite a few documentaries on YouTube about it, and it's a, it's a fun yeah. watch. I actually was talking to one of my clients. She's a, she owns a veterinarian clinic, and she does uh, Spartan races. And she also does Ironman. That and I'm like, have you ever heard of the Barking Marathon? She's like, no. I was like, go home and YouTube it. She texts me, like, <laughs> this shit is crazy. I'm like, I told you. She's like, there's no way I would do yeah. that. I was like, I know, but it's so crazy. You can't stop watching it. It's, it's such a, a crazy, crazy race. Um, yeah, that's 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 an, that's like there's this group of races that are like that where you like you said you watch the documentary just to say I'm never going to do that race I would n- I have no interest in doing that um, and then there's other, these other races like I said where they're they're in the most beautiful you're suffering in the most beautiful places on earth and you know that those are the ones that I tend to do and I I you know for me it's I, I don't want to say I pick my races based on how good of a film they'll make but it's kind of one and the same because if sure. they make for a good film they'll make for a good experience you know. I'm filming this beautiful thing while I'm also there experiencing it. Right. So, um, and, and my hope is that sometimes people will watch those videos and say like, that looks really hard, but I do want to do that one day, maybe in 10 years, that's on my bucket list. Cause it just looks incredible versus that looks miserable and I want nothing to do with it. I think there's an in-between there, right. Yeah. Where we can suffer again, suffer in beautiful places and we can aspire to, to, yeah, to, to do that, to, to, you know, and do it with, with people, 
you know, that we're close to and, um, and there's, you know, come away from that, not just a broken person, you know, but like come, come away from it as a better person, like having learned something. I watch like you and Audrey go out and do these fast packing and you're up in, in the mountains of Canada and you're on what looks to be like, Oh, they're running on a trail that's three feet wide and on both sides go straight down the 200 feet. It's like, <laughs> is there not wind up there? It, the views, the views on uh, Canada. We're, I, we're lucky where we are. Yeah. Canada and, and that's just downright I mean, gorgeous. Beautiful, but the, what, but British Columbia is unique, yeah. you know, the South coast mountains here. Um, and you know, and the, the, the Rocky mountains on the border of British Columbia and yeah. Alberta, they're just incredible, but, um, I love the Alps as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, they're, they're beautiful in a different way. Um, Canada is wild, you know, we have grizzly bears and it's true wilderness. So there's an element of adventure there that maybe is lacking sometimes when you're in Europe, but in Europe, there's the infrastructure. And as a runner, I mean, we can go pretty far, you know, we could in theory, pick up from a town in France and run to a town in Switzerland and stay in a hotel and, you know, or stay in a refugio in the mountains. And that's what we're going to do this summer. We're heading over for a month in August um, from the 1st till the 30th. And um, we're going to be spending uh, the first week running around Mont Blanc. We're going to spend uh, two weeks in Italy in the Italian Alps. Then we're back in Chamonix to do the UTMB race. And we're going to be doing, you know, the Matterhorn, all sorts of stuff. So it's, that's what we're going to do basically for that month is, is exactly that. Just have fun playing in the, in the, in the Alps uh, just for something different. So it's, it's, it's not going to be, I don't think it's better than BC. It's just, it's different. You know, it's different. We're going to get to use all the refugios and all the infrastructure there. I know I keep saying one more question, but it's not every day I get to <laughs> talk to somebody of your caliber who does these amazing races. Let's talk gadgets. One of the things I love yeah. watching on video is when people cross, they go, and you mm -hmm. know, the old joke, I don't count if it's not on Strava. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what time piece, you, what time piece you use there for your tracking? Cause you got, a, the, you, you got yeah. a nice piece of equipment there. Yeah, I'm not wearing it right now, but I use the Coros Vertex 2, um, top of the line. It's the latest model. So there's there's a few major brands out there. There's Garmin, uh, Polar, um, uh, Sunto. I was a Sunto loyalist for a lot of years. Um, used to use the Sunto 9 Barrow, which is an excellent watch. Uh, but Coros came out. They're sort of a cottage brand. Uh, they came out of nowhere really a few years ago, and they really... Um, their niche is these big battery, you know, these, these long lasting batteries, the Coros Vertex two though, has it all. I mean, but you, you pay for it. It's, it's, uh, in us dollars, seven or $800, sure. I think 800 bucks us probably. Um, but it's got a 140 hours of battery life at full GPS. You can double that by putting it, the resolution of the GPS down 240 hours, but 140 hours will get me through my longest race without charging the watch at full quality GPS. We've got what's called dual frequency GPS where it brings it down to 50 hours, but dual frequency is a new technology that's 10 times as accurate because it wow. triangulates the yeah. signals. Um, it's got all sorts of stuff, heart rate variability, pulse oximeter. Um, so you can look at your pulse, uh, your uh, oxygen saturation at altitude. Um, all, of course, all the standard stuff as well, like heart rate and things. Um, you, you don't need a watch like this though no. If you're just starting out, I mean, you can get a great watch for a few hundred bucks. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you, it allows you to track your metrics, but also there's a safety element with these watches. There's often these features called track back, or they might be called breadcrumbs, but basically it's always recording or it's always, it's always tracking where you are, of course. And you can mm -hmm. turn on a feature to get back to your car or get back to the trailhead. So if you get lost, 
You just flip a screen and you can follow your breadcrumbs back to your car. And that has got me out of a bind a few times when storms or fog has moved in and I've been caught out in the mountains, not knowing which way to go. Sure. Um, so I actually think that there is a reason for everybody to own a GPS watch and to use that watch when they're out on the trails for safety, um, provided you have one of those, those trackback features. I still use my, it's a couple years old now, battery life. I, I still use the Garmin Forerunner 735 uh, XT, which is a triathlon okay. watch. I don't swim, but yep. um, I was one of those Fitbit cats for the longest time. Oh, yeah. Which is great when you want to, you know, force yourself to walk more, you know. Mm -hmm. They work great, but what I discovered when I first started running is Fitbit uses step as a unit of measurement and not actual step. So when you do mm -hmm. this, that's 15 steps. I drive for mm -hmm. a living. And I'm a computer guy, so when I would steer my wheel, I would literally get home and have like 32,000 steps. I'm like, wow. Mm. And then I would go out running with people, and we would get to mile three, and they all stop, and I'm looking at my Fitbit, uh, and I got to keep going. And I yeah. discovered that Fitbit, they're great for the casual people who want to improve their life by walking, doing some jogging. But when you get into actual running and training, yeah, um, upgrade to a Garmin, both or or one of the other brands you said yeah Fit, and that, Fitbit, and what you, what, specifically it's a gps watch yeah it's a gps Fitbit watch uses, yeah it uses what's called an accelerometer so it can tell you're moving and it estimates each time it swings it counts it as a step um each time it changes direction uh watches have that as well so you can get a gps watch you can use it on the treadmill and they're pretty good they actually can estimate your distance within about 10 percent just based on your arm swing but in the mountains yes it's using gps to actually or on the road for that matter i should say it's using gps to track your distance and the higher end ones also use a barometer uh and the the barometer can measure barometric pressure yep. and it combines that with GPS. Cause as you go up and down in the mountains, the barometric pressure is changing and GPS can be a little funny sometimes when you're in, you know, under the canopy or in, in canyons. So it actually combines the two to nice. give you much more accurate um, elevation readings. Yeah. My only, my only real big complaint, and this happened to me this morning. Um, I'm sure the newer garments, cause this, this model garment is a couple years old, but the, it's a great yeah. when they still sell it. But the thing gets its time off of its connection to the satellite. And so yesterday I was at the gym and my watch died. Came home, plugged it yeah. in, charged it for an hour, put it back on, didn't think about it. Alarm clock went off this morning. I look at my watch, <laughs> 7.35, I hit snooze. Little yeah. did I realize it's 8.35. My Garmin actually doesn't, I actually have to go and hit run, start, wait for it to connect to a satellite yeah. for it to get the correct time. So if you have an older or, Garmin. Or you could sync it with your watch or with your phone if you have Bluetooth. Yeah, the newer ones have Bluetooth, so you just sync to your mobile, and it usually happens in the background. Well, the, yeah. and that's, like I said, with this old with the 7.35, I do not know why. It's, it is synchronized by my phone, but it will not mm. update the time until you hit run. And it oh, connects. Okay. It's just must be this model and the older ones, but because like, yeah. I'm an IT guy. I'm like, why is my – to get your time set, just go outside right. and hit run. <laughs> okay, fine. But, yeah, so this morning my watch was an hour off because it took an hour to charge it last night. So Yeah. But uh, – Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Yeah, this I, was fun. This was great. Yeah. I, I greatly appreciate the fact that some random weirdo... First, the fact that you got my message on Instagram, that, that tells me that you checked the other box. Most people don't realize I, the other box is there. Yeah, I, I get a lot of messages. I get a lot of comments, and I try to respond to all of them because yeah. I really do appreciate it. I love the feedback. You know, People give me constructive criticism, too, as well as compliments. But yeah, no, I, I always I always respond to people. So you know, if anybody wants to hit me up and send me a message and ask me a question, you can do that for sure. Um, Instagram or on YouTube in, in any, any of my YouTube uh, videos as well. 
And as always, if you go to failtofail.com or d-410.com and you click on the page coinciding with this episode, because I know most of y'all listen to it through podcast apps, which is fantastic. But if you go to our website, you will see the page. You'll see some photos of Jeff. You'll see links to his Instagram and YouTube channel and what other pages he sends me in an email to put up to get traction over there to him. His name is Jeff Peltier. I found him on YouTube. He's an ultra runner. He's a fantastic video production editor, director, filmer. And that's the other thing I love, the fact you call your, your videos film, because they are film. These aren't just, oh, yeah, I Products. shot this with my iPhone and my GoPro, and I put it together using Filmdora, like I do. <laughs> Slap it up there. You, what are you using? You, you're probably not using um, Premiere, are you? Are you using Adobe I, I used Premiere? to. I use DaVinci Resolve now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, for my auto editing from our radio days, I'm still using Adobe Audition, uh, which works great for audio. Okay. Yep. But anyhow, his name's Jeff. He's a fantastic guy. Thank you so much. And uh, for the rest of you guys, I know this podcast comes and goes because it all this podcast comes and goes based on the guests that I can come to find on because I host two other podcasts. But I know that if I'm on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, which is about World War II, and I'm talking about running, people are going to tune out. Or if I know on my other podcast, I'm talking about World War II, people are going to tune out. So I have three podcasts to justify my interest in this particular podcast. I love people coming on here who find success in very, very hard things, hence the title, Failed to Fail. So uh, thank you, Jeff, and we will talk to the rest of you guys soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>